Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Professor Simon Jackman, the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. And of course, the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, Today is a slightly different webinar for us, but one we're really excited. It's been a, a little while in the making, so we're, we're delighted to be able to, to, to do this special webinar today. Um, we've got, um, as you know, uh, Zoe Daniel, a former bureau chief for the ABC uh, in Washington, DC, and, and long time, very accomplished uh, journalist, uh, a lot of uh, uh, foreign assignments in, in her career with the ABC. Zoe's been helping us out tremendously uh, with moderating duties and, and uh, in, our, in our webinars, holding the, the long and windy experts and guests of the United States Study Center um, to short order and helping us have some really terrific, uh, nicely paced and balanced um, uh, webinars. But today we're, we're turning the table somewhat. Uh, Zoe, as some of you uh, may know, of course, uh, penned a, a book um, summarizing uh, her, her time as, as bureau chief there in DC called Greetings from Trumpland, How an Unprecedented Presidency Changed Everything, co-authored with Roscoe Whalen. And it's a, it's a, it's a ripping read. Um, it, it makes, if nothing else, I, I'm, I, I keep harking on this, Zoe, forgive me for this, but I love the way it's written in the present tense. It takes the reader right back into the field. Uh, along, you're alongside with Zoe and the things that uh, uh, she and, and Roscoe were experiencing uh, on, the, on the campaign trail and out there across the United States during uh, Zoe's time uh, in the United States. Uh, and it's a great way, it's a great kind of review but, uh, and a setup for where the US was through those four years and of course where, where it's going critically as well. And, and what I wanted to do today was to step out of the way, uh, and I'll be doing that in just a minute, and we're so thrilled to have, um, frankly, a legend of Australian journalism, nothing, nothing, no description other than that does Jim Middleton justice. Uh, Jim, uh, a long time um, uh, uh, observer of American politics. And indeed, I got to know him um, when he was a host on Sky early in my time here at the, running the US Study Center, frequently tapping us for our expertise about the US. And we got to know Jim that way. But of course, you know, I grew up watching Jim, as, as many of us did, watching Jim uh, as a political correspondent uh, for the ABC. And, and quite frankly, uh, there, there aren't too many people better in the business than Jim Middleton. And so when Zoe suggested that, that maybe Jim runs today's session, I said, that just checks a huge box for, for me personally. But I hope to, for, I know, uh, for, um, for, the, for the big audience uh, that att regularly attends our webinars. And indeed, some of the audience that have registered for day, I think, is in no small measure due to not just Zoe's book, but uh, great to have Jim on the masthead for today as well. And, and that's it from me. Um, having given those two fine individuals such, such big intros, this is where I step out for the balance of the hour and hand over to the very capable Jim Middleton for this conversation with Zoe about her book, Greetings from Trumpland. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much, Simon. High praise indeed. We've got to live up to your expectations, I hope now. <laughs> uh, Zoe, good to talk to you again. Uh, one of the striking things and the most valuable things I think about your book is that it is really reporting from the field. It's talking extensively as you did during your four years in the United States to ordinary American citizens about their feelings, about the state of their nation, the state of their politics and where they went from there. So uh, I was one of those uh, people, armchair experts, perhaps um, observing the 2016 election from afar uh, it did seem to me, looking at the data that were available, that you could see a pathway for Trump to get to the White House, but it seemed very narrow and very difficult. What you found on the ground was a very different set of experiences indeed. Why do you think the data was so wrong in terms of the assessment that you found uh, talking to ordinary Americans, which led you to the expectation that there was a very real prospect of Donald Trump getting 
elected on the first Tuesday in November 2016. Well, thank you, Jim, and thank you, Simon, for that big introduction. And as you say, Jim, the book is quite different to uh, the rest of the crowded market of Trump tomes that have landed over the last few years. It's not an inside the White House account, although, as Simon said, it is very much my journey together with Roscoe through America, and it is written in the first person and in the present tense. So it's an immersive journey so that people really have a sense of travelling alongside me, being in the places that I was and, and getting a sense of what that experience was like. But the thing is, you've got to remember that when I was appointed to the role of US Bureau Chief in mid-2015, Hillary Clinton was apparently the shoe-in to win the election. Donald Trump had just descended the golden escalator and was a bit of a, a joke candidate. And, you know, older, more experienced journalists in Sydney said to me before I left, look, it'll be a, an interesting, entertaining campaign, but of course, once Hillary wins, it'll be kind of back to no drama Obama um, type of vibe. But it became evident to me as soon as I landed and started traveling outside DC into rural areas of the US, into small cities and towns, particularly in inland America, that that wasn't a fait accompli. And very early on at the Iowa caucuses, for example, we went to very small scale retail politics type events with Hillary Clinton, where there were a couple of hundred people there and Hillary would stand up and give her, her kind of PowerPoint presentation type of speech. Um, and then round the corner, we would catch up with the Trump campaign and there would be thousands of people queued to go into Donald Trump's events. So there was a momentum even then, a fascination with Donald Trump and what he could deliver to people. And I think, you know, early in that 2016 campaign, even among rank and file voters, there was a bit of a novelty factor. Uh, there was a bit of a, he probably won't win it, but it, it's, a, it's an interesting quirk to the campaign. But, but over time, people really embraced Donald Trump. And I think, um, you know, the, the reasons behind that are manifold. Some of the characters that we uh, intertwine through the story in the book are people who voted twice for Barack Obama, but then out of disappointment with what the Obama administration had managed to achieve, then voted twice for, for Donald Trump. Th that loss of hope, uh, that loss of prosperity, that sense of disappointment, that sense of my children will have a worse life than I do, uh, that sense of I can't afford decent health care, I can't afford to put my children through college, my, my factories have closed, the job market is, is narrowing. Uh, just a sense of looking for someone, some, someone different, someone who would call things out, listen to them, look towards them, talk to them, um, embrace them rather than um, exist sort of politically above them as, as an elite politician in Washington. All of those things, I think, played into the reasons that people voted for Donald Trump, not only in 2016, but again in, in 2020, much as he didn't win the election, but still 74 million people uh, were behind him. So why were the polls so wrong? Uh, well, pollsters weren't looking in the right places. Uh, maybe people who were answering the, the questions were keeping, maybe those who were going to vote for him were keeping their mouths shut. Um, it was also potentially a different group of people who perhaps wouldn't ordinarily vote in a, a presidential election. You know, lots of different things, I think, played in there. But uh, it, as I say, it was evident to us out in Western Pennsylvania and Ohio, where every yard sign was Trump-Pence uh, leading up to the 2016 election, that, that something was going on that was different to what the polls were saying. And I would come back to the office in DC and say to Roscoe, my co-writer who sat next to me and he was often in the office while I was in the field, I'd say, I think I'm going mad. I'm sure he's gonna win this election. It, it, it just can't be that we're going to events with 20,000 Trump supporters versus a couple of hundred Hillary supporters. 
And most people we're speaking to are really motivated by Trump and finding people to talk in any sort of passionate way about Hillary is quite difficult. So how can it be that she's going to win the election? I, I honestly, Jim, I thought I was spending too much time with Trump supporters in, in 2016 and that was skewing my view. Um, but on that night, on election night, when I was in uh, the Javits Centre under that glass roof and she did not win, I was probably the least surprised person in that building. <laughs> so it wasn't really a combination of, uh, if I can put it this way, rusted on Republican voters who held their noses at the particular failings, personal failings, frailties, and uh, quite frankly, fairly disgusting behaviour on the part of Trump on the one hand, and another group who was simply so alienated from the political elites and what was going on in Washington that they felt impelled to vote for Trump and the combination of those two groups were enough to do it? Yeah, well, and you've still got those two groups now. Um, you know, the, the moderate Republican leaders or the, the sort of centrists in the Republican Party who called... Trump out early on in 2016 and, and then fell into line behind him because it became evident that he was going to win the election, who then sort of half-heartedly renounced him after what happened on January 6, but then fell back in behind him again by the time the CPAC conference was held in March. You know, there, there is still a base of leadership in the Republican Party who need to keep Trump there as an option because they need that other group that you're talking about who, and they also potentially held their noses at the, the uh, to put it kindly, incivility that Trump uh, embraced and, um, you know, put about um, uh, not only in the US but around the world. There, were, there was a sense of we don't like what he says on Twitter necessarily. We don't like his language around uh, women particularly. Um, however, we will pause our scruples on those issues for the sake of what we think he can deliver uh, perhaps economically and in regard to, to jobs. And a lot of people that I spoke to during 2016, you know, their primary voting motivation is about money in their wallet. Um, but, but also everything else that comes with that, the prosperity that I'm talking about, the hope for the, their future, their children's future and all those sorts of things. Um, so on that basis, many people were prepared to pause their concerns about him because they like him for his disruptive tactics, um, that he's the anti-politician. And I do think that 2016 was the perfect storm in the sense that you had Trump versus Hillary, uh, and Hillary, other than being a woman, is the archetypal establishment candidate because of, you know, her obvious background, but also has a, a lot of baggage, even among women, um, around a perception that she enabled Bill Clinton through the Lewinsky scandal, for example. Um, there is deep hatred of her around her emails and lack of trust uh, and what happened in Libya with the ambassador when she, she was Secretary of State. So there's a lot of antipathy towards Hillary and she was also facing her own fight in the Democratic Party, obviously, against Bernie Sanders with a sort of rebel uprising there. So that, that perfect storm um, happened in, in exactly the right timing for Donald Trump. Look, the global view, both at the elite level and among ordinary people, is that uh, Donald Trump's presidency uh, was a failure and an egregious one at that. And yet we do see this situation where in the 2020 election, 24 million people still voted for him. Why do you think that was? Do you think that the international attitude is way at odds with the feeling of many ordinary Americans? And if so, why were they prepared to stick with him despite 
uh, his behaviour and actions uh, through the four years of his presidency. Yeah, well, look, I 100% think that the view of Trump from the outside looking in is very different to that from the inside looking out. And, you know, I would see, for example, during the four plus years that I was in the US, in my own social media feeds, my friends, my family commenting about Trump and the sorts of things that he was doing. And uh, of course, he's going to get voted out and why, do, why doesn't he get impeached and, you know, they should get rid of him and he, he's crazy and all those sorts of things. Whereas when we would then go and speak with his supporters after 100 days or around the midterm elections and later in the, in the presidency, they were still behind him because they, they just read it completely differently. And in the minds of those people, it was, it was not a failure. Um, the erosion of civility is, as we've already said, something that had kind of been put on a shelf as something that was tolerable for the sake of the other things that he could do. And we talk a lot in the book about the fact that Donald Trump is an obsessive box ticker. Um, and he really likes to, like he put out his, you know, um, contract with the American voter when he was first elected. And he kind of went through a process of ticking off the things that he said he would do. So, you know, withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, uh, move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, enact tax reform, um, the Supreme Court, all sorts of those sorts of things. Um, Obamacare was one which was a fail. Um, but, you know, many of those things he did actually do. Um, trade, take it up to China. You know, people who are involved in trade in the US, um, many, many of those people suffered economically because of that uh, trade battle that went on during the Trump administration. But you go out and actually stand in a field with someone who grows soybeans, who says, well, yeah, okay, we're kind of getting it in the neck now because of Trump's policy, but it's short-term pain for long-term gain. Someone needed to lay down the law to the Chinese on this. So there was a degree of respect around that. So, you know, international assumptions around how Donald Trump was perceived and indeed assumptions among uh, people living in large coastal cities about Donald Trump's behaviour are very different to what you encounter when you go out into inland America, the so-called flyover states, speaking to the sort of self-described forgotten people who continue to back Trump and voted for him again in 2020 because um, in part they would have seen that as a, as a work in progress. Uh, look, let's talk about the Supreme Court for a minute. Um, and one of the things that uh, was striking in the uh, 2016 campaign, and I remember observing the final debate where Chris Wallace devoted the very first section, and it was something like 20 minutes, really to the question of abortion, uh, which by implication was uh, Roe v. Wade and then the Supreme Court. Uh, in terms of uh, Trump's legacy, whatever people may say about uh, questions of failure, the, the one significant, really, really significant and enduring legacy and one which obviously Biden is wrestling with at the moment and these questions about whether to expand the membership of the Supreme Court, uh, just how singularly important was that with a key element of the American electorate in shoring up the support, despite the Hollywood tapes and various other uh, crimes and misdemeanours of mm -hmm. Trump during the, uh, as his history emerged. Yeah, well, it seems very contradictory, doesn't it, that evangelical Christians, for example, back Trump largely. Um, but it's all about abortion rights. Um, and social policy more broadly. And uh, I think 
you know, the, the Americans are on this call understand this. I think Australians struggle to understand how powerful the Supreme Court is in terms of its influence on sort of life and culture in the United States. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's power that lasts for generations. And, you know, if one of Donald Trump's aims or one of his his team's aims during his presidency was to um, stack the Supreme Court. Well, that, that was a resounding success. It's a bit of luck and timing too, to be fair, but it fell the right way for Donald Trump. And if there is a lasting legacy, that's it, I think. Um, but also, I think the other thing that doesn't really register at all with an international audience is that the administration was also um, pushing judges into the lower courts as well. It's not just mm. the Supreme Court. You know, this filters down so that you end up with um, broadly conservative judges making decisions um, across the gamut of the, the court system. And then, as you say, when a progressive administration comes in, then they they have their struggles um, because they're sort of battling the Supreme Court. So the, the idea that, much as it seems very contradictory, that, you know, extreme conservatives would back Donald Trump in spite of um, the, the Hollywood tapes, the grab him by the pussy comments, the, you know, his horrendous attitudes towards women um, and language and, and, and behaviour over time comes down to that. Uh, indeed, indeed it did. Uh, look, one of the other points too, and we've seen the fallout from this with the Joe Biden's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, or the announcement of it anyway, how important uh, in terms of uh, Trump's success in 2016 was his, uh, was his uh, appeal to Americans that these were unnecessary wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, which were costing too much and getting nowhere, and that did this have an impact on his vote in 2020 as well, that he was able to boast that he hadn't got America into any other wars, any more wars? Mm. Well, that issue in my mind is opportunistic. And you've got to remember that at the end of the day, Donald Trump's an arch populist. You know, he could have been Democrat, really. I mean, he just sort of made his choice about where he would be. Well, he was a Democrat successful. for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, and had made donations to the Democrats, including Hillary Clinton in the past. Um, so, you know, at the end of the Obama era, it, it was just a button that was ready to push. And, and therefore, uh, in order to, you know, appeal to his base and to, you know, in, in that populist way, that was one of his, you know, uh, stack of, of buttons that he could press. Um, and sure, um, by the end of the administration, again, as a box ticker, he's able to say, well, you know, here's our record on this. Um, but I also, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me to see Joe Biden so early in his administration taking action on that because, you know, you could argue that, um, Donald Trump sort of paved the way for Biden to then be able to step into that that space and action it sort of under cover of the all of the legwork that Donald Trump had already done and therefore it, it became not particularly controversial it was like okay we're doing this um, and and you know Biden's just stepped in um, thanks very much Donald Trump for preparing the ground and I, do, I think it's you know, relatively well known that Biden did, during the Obama years, oppose the so-called surge uh, in Afghanistan as well. Uh, and there's one other thing too, and I may be wrong here, and if so, I'm sure Simon will correct me, but I think it's, I think it's, it's the case that in those counties and so on and so forth, which had a higher proportion of American veterans, 
they tended to be more supportive of Trump than elsewhere. So in a sense, he was being a beneficiary of this grassroots and people who had real experience of what it was like to be in Afghanistan and Iraq who felt bereft, as it were, and left behind and forgotten, uh, that were uh, very open to the kind of appeal uh, and kind of statements that Trump was making. Was that your experience too in, in your on-the-ground observations? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know statistics, but I would say anecdotally, uh, we, we met and spoke to many veterans during our time traveling around over um, those years. And for exactly the reasons that you described, the majority of them were Trump supporters. Um, but, uh, you know, in the areas that we're talking about geographically, where those sorts of issues that I've outlined around loss of hope and disappointment and not having a future and all of those things, well, obviously those people unfortunately get caught up particularly um, as return service people um, in, you know, all sorts of post-conflict um, mental health issues, physical health issues, economic issues, lack of jobs, all those sorts of things. So therefore they develop a sympathy for the kinds of views um, and, you know, rhetoric that Donald Trump was, was utilising. You know, I do think that you potentially get a very different story talking to um, veterans who live in, you know, parts of New York or California, for example, just because the political attitudes are very different. But those who we spoke to definitely were on the, the Trump side of the ledger. Look, uh, we will get to a number of other issues. And also, we have a bunch of questions from uh, some of our audience too, which we'll get to shortly. And also, of course, to the key issue that's coming up immediately, which is Joe Biden's uh, summit with 40 other nations in relation to climate, which, of course, is the key challenge that we face internationally in the coming months, years uh, in particular. But I want to go to a slight sidetrack, which is your experience as a journalist in, in terms of operating in the United States. Now, when I was a foreign correspondent, which was back in the Jurassic age, uh, mm -hmm. things were very, very different. I noticed, for example, that you remark on a couple of occasions about the dread of getting a call in the middle of the night, which would almost invariably be about yet another school shooting or something else. In the days when I was there, uh, very fortunately, more often than not, and not necessarily due to my skill or perception, I could be ahead of the game by comparison with the desk in Sydney. And so I didn't get that many of those calls. It was just that the nature of communications was such that, uh, that it was far easier uh, just to keep up with events, whether it be by, you know, assiduous observation of CNN or, or CBS Radio or the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and so on and so forth. Now, that's completely flipped on its head, is my observation now, and that more often than not, foreign correspondents, not just in the United States, but they're constantly assailed and oppressed, as it were, by the desk with stuff that you know, might just have slipped by them. And I do wonder how on earth it was in circumstances like this with the demands of 24-hour news, you were actually able to find the time to get out and talk to so many people in such detail over such time. How the hell did you do it? Uh, it was really difficult. Um, and, you know, well, Jim, you've been working as a, a journalist for much longer than me, but if you consider the arc of my career and that when I started in the early 90s, I was working doing radio journalism only, cutting stories on reel-to-reel -reel tape. Um, and we have since gone through that entire era of digitization so that now you can basically do uh, radio, television and digital journalism with one laptop and a camera. Um, and what, what that has resulted in is that uh, we can do a lot more with less, but we do a lot more with less. So you have less staff 
and less time to do a lot more things. Um, and so that's just journalism at, at its base level. When you introduce uh, being a foreign correspondent in a foreign time zone and then overlay Donald Trump on top of that, uh, that equals absolutely relentless. And, you know, I've been a correspondent in Africa. I was based in Johannesburg and then I was based in Southeast Asia for five years. And so over that time, I've seen that evolve too. When I was Africa correspondent, I could go out uh, for a couple of weeks and just call into the foreign desk every few days and say, it's okay, I haven't been kidnapped by rebels, you know, on the Somalian border. Um, I'm fine. I'll be, you know, back in Joburg in a few days. By the time I got to Southeast Asia, what you're talking about, those requests from the desk had increased substantively. And then uh, moving into this posting in 2015, as you say, we are in a complete 24-hour international news cycle now. So we would be filing day and night, um, wake up in the morning, pick up the phone, look at Donald Trump's tweets, straight up onto social media, into the office, trying to work out what the story of the day is. And, you know, Donald Trump, I think, utilised chaos theory very effectively, particularly in the first couple of years of his administration, where everyone was just chasing him. It was very difficult to set your own agenda, um, get out and do kind of the kind of lateral feature stories that I would like to do to provide context and understanding because all we were doing was sort of trying to catch um, the balls of Donald Trump's uh, tweets, his comments in press conferences, the, the lines that he would feed the press while he was getting on Marine One, um, things that he would say, you know, in conversations with world leaders, including our, our own then Prime Minister, um, you know, all sorts of things. It was just trying to keep up. And, you know, there definitely was an awareness for me as Bureau Chief of trying to find a path through that rather than chasing, trying to um, have an agenda where we could get out and talk to actual people about their, their thoughts and feelings, their interpretation, um, to, so that we could develop a more nuanced understanding of how people were receiving that um, and what was actually going on. But, you know, particularly in 2017, so after he was inaugurated for that year, it, it was just absolute uh, relentless work, people being staff being appointed, then sacked, you know, there was a revolving door through the White House. Inevitably, it would happen on at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. We'd have this Friday drop of someone had been sacked, whether it was Scaramucci or whoever it might be on, on that day. Um, so there was just that sense of how do you keep, how do you keep up with this? Um, how do you find a path through this so that you can deliver the audience a more nuanced understanding so that it's not all reactive so that you're trying to, as you say, you're trying to get ahead of it. Um, I, I'm not convinced that we ever got ahead of it, quite frankly. Um, it, it was and was that also, was that also the case, do you think, for the US press? I mean, they become, um, or media in general, not just print media, a lot of criticism that they never really got the measure of Trump in terms of accountability do you think that they that that criticism is justified or that indeed as time went on they did get better and better and more effective and more telling uh in that aspect of of reporting the trump presidency yeah i think a couple of things happened um one was that they put on a lot more staff um, so they actually had resources to fact check him. And, you know, it's very time consuming. Uh, you know, in our bureau in DC, we had three correspondents um, and several producers and camera operators. But, you know, trying to fact check the president's every word live um, is very labour intensive. So the likes of the Post, the New York Times, CNN and others put on a lot of staff. Uh, and therefore they had the resources to do it. Also, I think that the, the public got wise to him over time and so did the press. So the press then got braver in terms of calling him out. Um, and so you would have CNN would put up a strap saying, 
you know, Donald Trump says X in brackets, not true, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like they became very direct um, <laughs> with just sort of going, this is just, this is just sort of off the wall. But the thing is, Jim, that, you know, in such a partisan media environment in, in the United States, which is so different to Australia because you have, you know, such a, a much bigger population, therefore more capacity to be very partisan, that, you know, people only listen to, watch and read what they already believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not necessarily, well, they're not getting the, the sort of spectrum of views that you even get in an increasingly partisan Australian media environment, even reading the most partisan media here, you'll still get some sense of the other point of view. There, you don't. Um, And so while you would have the CNNs of the world and the the major papers calling him out, um, the reaction among Trump's base would be, you're just trying to bring him down. And then they would be consuming the media that was telling them that. So I think, you know, what we need to remember if we're, particularly if you look at this book as not only a summary of what happened in the Trump era, but uh, some context for what happens going forward. And that's kind of the whole point of it, is to say that Donald Trump's supporters would argue that they voted for him in a democratic process in 2016 and he was legitimately elected and Democrats never accepted that and spent the entire presidency trying to bring him down via the Russia probe, various attempts at impeachment um, and other things. And that although in our minds, or certainly in mine, Donald Trump deliberately seeded the idea that the election was going to be stolen from him in 2020, those Trump supporters that I'm talking about, many of them, believe that they marched on the Capitol because the election was stolen from their democratically elected president. So this is the starting point for for their, their position. And I think the big problem that we have now, and Joe Biden has a huge task, is how do you bridge the gap between those people and a fair portion who, of Democrats who say, we can't even deal with you. You put this guy in the White House. That was bad form. Therefore, you're not even worth interacting with at all. So then you have a very sort of split uh, set of groups who will not even talk to each other um, or sort of bridge that divide. And, you know, Biden is doing great things with policy, um, very much on the front foot in this window that he has. But between now and 2024, um, not even in a political sense, just in a societal sense, um, that is the big test. It it, it sure is. And in that regard, where do you think the Republican Party is going to end up given the holdover support for Trump. They're sort of caught, aren't they, that they can't get rid of him. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, it's not entirely useful to have this albatross hanging around their neck either. Mm. Well, I think um, in a previous conversation, Simon expressed it very well, where he said, well, you might need Trump for the primaries um, to get your candidates up. Um, But, you know, the presidential election, um, he might become a big problem for you. Um, So (laughs) I don't know. I mean, there's a a huge schism in the Republican Party and um, many people know much more about this than me, but it's self-evident that you have, you know, moderate Republicans um, who don't like Trump. Then you have a group of Republicans who... Um, probably don't like Trump, but handed to him because they knew he could win and kind of need him um, now. And then you have 74 million, I would say more than 74 million Trump voters um, who are sensibly Republicans. So how do you keep all of those people in the tent at the same time? Um, And how do you if you know that Trump running again in 2024, and I honestly don't know how realistic that is, but if you know that that's destructive, how do you massage 
Trump out um, because Trump is all about ego and he's all about be being wanted and needed um, and being sort of massaged. So you have to kind of give him a job. Simon, I think we might have lost Jim. He was looking very frozen. <laughs> And you are muted. Yeah. Oh, there you two. are. Yes. I think we have. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, hopefully Jim will pop back on. But as, as I was saying, you know, and this is something I know you'd be watching very closely, this schism in the, the Republican Party. You know, who leads, who leads the Republicans to the 2024 election if it's not Donald Trump? I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating question. Someone suggested Mike Pompeo to me the other day and I thought, oh, okay, maybe. Um, but how, how do you follow, how do you follow Donald Trump? I don't know how, how you follow Donald Trump. That's a hard act to follow depending, you know, on both, no matter which way you look at it. The, the, just on that, Zoe, the thing I think I always try to remember, you, you, you can't look at campaigns through the prism of just, <laughs> one candidate from one side, it's, it's, a, it's a contest. So if the Dems, if, if Kamala Harris is the nominee, if Biden really is a one-term, one and out and hands the reins over to Harris, what sort of a political dynamic does that create? Does Trump go, yeah, I can beat her and I'm coming back and I'm going to make history? Or, you know, and, and or does do a lot of other candidates also think, wow, um, frankly, I fancy my chances in a head. It's going to, or I fancy a, any Republican's chances in that contest. I think it's why I think the Republican field cleared out to some extent for Trump mm. in 16. Um, mm. Who really wants to run against Hillary Clinton Incorporated? So you've always sort of got to judge sort of the political atmospherics. I think, I think getting a read on Biden's intentions hmm. is perhaps the first shoe to drop here. Um, we haven't heard much about it. Um, does no, he still I mean, continue so to be Biden a one-term president said, or not? Well, he, he had said that he was going to be a one-term president, but he seems to have alluded to, you know, potentially running. And, of course, you would want to keep that door open for the moment, wouldn't you? Even if you sure. don't intend to, you would keep you would let people think that that was possible, so that they yeah. don't just think, "Oh, you're yeah. you're just the bunny who's there for one term." But you know, the other thing that's interesting, I think, is that um, well, Nikki Haley's comments I thought were very interesting last week, where she said that if Trump runs, she won't, um, which uh, that sort of says a lot to me about where those potential candidates are and what they're thinking might be. But the other thing about Harris is that um, the Black Lives Matter situation and the sort of focus on race in the United States right now, which I, I feel like it's, it's bigger in a way because it's been enabled by the Trump era because there was so much focus on he, him enabling things like white supremacy and his language and behaviour around race in in a similar way to the Me Too movement, that perhaps it made it bigger than it would have otherwise been. Yeah. And that's a potential positive outcome of the Trump presidency, that there, there has been a, a more considered focus and conversation around those two issues that might, might have otherwise happened. But that also, surely, it helps Harris um, at, at a potential... Those, yeah, both of those things help her in 2024. Yeah. Hey, um... Since I'm emceeing now, um, <laughs> let me let me ask um, about about a question that's come up online. I, and, and I think it's a really uh, good one, um, and that is just I know you're out there reporting on the campaign and 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 sort of the Trump phenomenon, but but sorry, one thing here at the US Study Center, our data consistently reveal, and it's implicit in this question we've got from Tony Booth, um, um, with gun violence in the US, uh, how often you'd be called out to do, or someone from the Bureau would be sent out to somewhere 
Mm. And, and the list of cities is sort of burned into our brains at the moment. But, but you're covering those stories and your sense of, of that facet of America and your reactions to that as an Australian mm. and, you know, as a journalist yeah. that's worked in many other, frankly, you know, officially dangerous parts of the world. And, and then you've got yeah. the United States. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I had two children who were in school um, throughout my time in, in the US. And in all honesty, we, we almost didn't go. I almost didn't take the job because I was too frightened. Wow. Um, and it's quite emotional for me, you know, and I, hmm. I, I clock watched every school day um, for that clock to hit 3.30 that I'd know they were on the bus wow, for four yeah. years um, because I went to school shootings and I don't only know that from the television, you know, I, and, you know, we had this thing in the bureau. I mean, just like any newsroom, you know, we have, I don't know, 10 televisions yeah. mounted from the ceiling or whatever. And we also had like the equivalent of the old days police scanner, um, but it's, it's, it's um, actually AP in New York that come up, you know, um, you know, calling all newsrooms, calling all newsrooms. This is AP um, aerial shots of school in, and my mind would immediately be, please don't let this be my children's school. Um, so self-interest first. And then, okay, it's some other parents' children's school. Do we need to move? Who do we need to move? How do we get there? And then you go into that logistics issue of getting people to jump, um, putting people on planes and getting people to, to the location. Um, you know, I went to the Orlando, the aftermath of the Orlando massacre at the um, mm -hmm. nightclub in Florida, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. talked to families of, of victims and um, it's just ho horrifyingly scary and, and, and intractable um, and difficult to understand the lack of sort of capacity for reform on that issue. So for... For that reason, um, without going on and on, but my, I have a portion of my family who are in Utah um, and I had never met them before. They're on my dad's side. So a whole lot oh, of my okay. cousins live in Salt Lake City. Um, and so, of course, they've grown up with guns. They're American. Um, and so I went and did a story with my cousin uh, where we went out hunting and he, sh he taught me how to shoot an um, AR-15 and in a shooting range and we talked about um, their attachment to their the guns culturally as recreation um, sport you know something they do for fun that's part of their their freedom that they can go out into the wilderness and you know hunt rabbits and stuff like that um, so again much like a lot of the, the book, which is about understanding Trump supporters, it right. was kind of like trying to understand another position right. that's the opposite to my own. Um, so, you know, I certainly developed an understanding of why people don't want to give up their guns, but obviously being an Australian who's also sort of had some direct experience with victims of gun violence, um, you know, I very much sit on the reform is needed side of that debate. Sure. Hey, it looks like Jim is back. Yes, apologies oh, for Jim. that technical glitch, you see. The last edition of Analog Man, it'll get you every time. Uh, look, I don't know whether you address this, uh, Simon and Zoe, but the question of climate change, very important conference, as I said, coming up in a moment. And also, Simon, some very interesting research which you published this morning, uh, which I'll just mention to you, Zoe, showing that 68% uh, of Americans say dealing with climate change is a very or fairly important foreign policy goal. And even more remarkably, 97% of Biden supporters. Now that contrasts with the findings of what we see in Australia, where you see something like 80% of Australians saying dealing with climate change is a fairly or very important foreign policy goal, but only 50% saying that Australia should do more. Is there anything like the kind of division over climate change policy in the United States in terms of your on-the-ground experience in comparison with what we've seen blighting the debate, discourse and action 
in Australia over the past decade at least. Yeah, I thought it was a great article, Simon. Everyone should read that. It's quite interesting um, perspective and some great stats in there. Thanks for the plug. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Here to help. <laughs> And it was also in uh, our, the Australian newspaper, um, which is a, 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 well, perhaps seen to be the polar opposite of the ABC, but they do have lots of interesting stuff in there from time to time. Um, look, I would only say, Jim, two things. One, that in the lead up to the 2020 election, our... Um, uh, I guess our, our friends who we interact with repeatedly during this book... Um, who voted again for Donald Trump, one of their key concerns was sort of Biden's Green New Deal approach. There, there was deep concern in the sort of Trump um, voter camp around large-scale environmentally focused reform that could impact industry. So, again, it came back to money in the pocket, um, communities that have already been really gutted by the global financial crisis um, and, and in their minds, globalisation, cheap labour and all sorts of other things that Trump mobilised as, as a weapon um, during his campaign and, and administration. So that that's sort of on the table that that particular group are deeply concerned about that and I think would remain so. But the the other point I'd make is that if you go out to... Uh, West, West, Western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, you know, the areas that have been uh, affected in, deeply by the um, collapse of coal, um, there are wind farms and solar everywhere there. Um, that positive feedback loop that was sort of kicked off under Obama with a focus on renewables was already happening. So you're starting to see the economic drivers take over in those communities. And particularly, you know, in a place like West Virginia, where, you know, you have desperate unemployment, you have no jobs for young people, even in places like McDonald's, because the adults are working there because they have nowhere else to work. So where do the young people go? So you just have this downward spiral of poverty. You, you're starting to see young people moving into working in solar energy or working in the wind industry. So that positive feedback loop, that sense of business running ahead of government, uh, I think was already happening. And because the structures were put there by Obama, although dismantled by Trump, the infrastructure obviously still exists. Those businesses are still there. So I feel like Biden's got a head start on sort of um, reigniting that process. And obviously, per the numbers that Simon's quoted in his article this morning, it has a clear mandate on the Democratic side to do it. Um, and, you know, I think it says something more broadly about Biden's approach in this early part of his administration. Um, under cover of COVID, an opportunity because of huge disruption to disrupt, to step into that disruption and affect um, disruptive structural change in various areas, infrastructure, poten uh, potentially healthcare, uh, climate, um, and well, obviously while dealing with the COVID situation. So to actually step into that and, and utilise it. And also, you know, Biden worked with Obama. Um, he obviously learned, um, especially if he's going to be a one-term president, just get in and do it. Um, get things moving. And mm -hmm. if it results in increased prosperity for those Trump supporters, then you may end up bring, bringing some of those along. Get some back, yeah, into the tent. Now, no, I did uh, promise uh, the opportunity to get some of the questions which you got from the audience, due partly to my technical incompetence. We lost a bit of time, or at least I have. But look, one, and one question at least, uh, which is this, and comes from uh, you were Sonia Thompson, who says Biden and Trump have both said they're going to run again in 2024, and you were talking there about the possibility of Biden being a one-term president. What are the odds, do you think, on either of them actually achieving that? What is the likelihood or possibility even of us seeing round two of Biden v Trump in 2024? 
Uh, well, uh, Simon and I sort of talked about this a little bit, slightly off, a little bit off um, this question when you were offline, Jim. Oh, but um, I, I mean, look, Biden, as I said um, briefly before, you know, he's le he's starting to leave that door open because obviously you would want people to think that there's potential for him to run again in order for them to take him seriously or more seriously now. So I think that's that sort of obvious political tactic. Um, whether he, instead of doing that, hands over to Harris, I think perhaps depends what happens, you know, over the next three years. I mean, four years is a long time. Um, as to Trump, you know, he's, apart from being a, um, an arch populist, he, he's just a, he's an egotist. So if he thinks he can win, um, and enough people are saying that he can win, then he may well run. Because he, he, his whole sort of modus operandi is to seek positive reinforcement, um, to be the best or better than whoever was previous to him. Um, so I wouldn't rule out Biden, maybe. Um, I, Trump, I wouldn't rule out. Um, but I do think that if he doesn't run again, then the Republicans have a problem in regard to what they do with him. Um, and again, just getting back to the, the Trumpers or the Trumpists, um, what, where do they end up and what, what do you do with them? And the other thing that I think you know, getting back to Biden's policies, um, and, uh, you know, he obviously recognises this as much as other people, is that, you know, the glow of kind of resolving the COVID situation is likely not going to last until the 2024 election. There's going to have to be more to it than that. So then that's when all of these other things that he's doing come into play, because these are long-running generational changes where people can actually see a shift uh, between now and the next election and, you know, actual policy being implemented, which is a rare thing these days, not only in the US, but elsewhere. <laughs> oh, that's a very pointed uh, remark, Zoe, but well made. Uh, look, thanks very much, Zoe. Uh, it's a terrific book, a beautiful book. I found it very valuable to read. I think it's a real asset and a real contribution to a very important aspect of our interaction with our uh, major and most important allies. So thank you very much. I can only encourage people to read it. And I hope that our discussion over the last hour has uh, encouraged people to, um, to get in there and buy it. Simon, thank you very much for the opportunity to much appreciated. Uh, a pleasure, Jim. Thank you. And, and again, thanks Zoe. And let me just f close by uh, echoing, um, echoing Jim's endorsement of the book. Um, uh, Australia um, is, is lucky that our national broadcaster maintains a, a quite substantial bureau in DC. Uh, and in a time where a lot of media organizations, uh, their budgets are going down, um, um, it's great to see that the national broadcaster has that footprint in DC. And as, and as, and as crazy a ride it was for Zoe and colleagues over there, um, with the with what change in the industry, but also uh, from, from Trump himself just driving news, um, it was it was it was very hard yards. But but a, but a real aspect of national service in there. So we I know you're being paid, but but um, for those of us back here, uh, the work by you and colleagues over there, and and indeed uh, it goes on um, uh, the the pace at which the bureau is producing content for the rest of us uh, and putting that Australian lens on it very much aligned with our mission for what it's worth. And that's why we're so delighted to be able to um, help, help with getting the word about this fabulous book out and indeed delighted to have an ongoing association with you from time to time. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more opportunities in the future, Zoe. Um, what you and some of your predecessors carry around in your, in your the intellectual capital there from your time in, in DC, enormously valuable to the US Study Center and enormously valuable in turn uh, to the rest of us, so, so thank you. Um, and thank you everybody for tuning in today. Uh, a great conversation um, between, um, between Jim and Zoe. And we do wanna tease uh, our next event uh, and that'll be uh, next Thursday. Look at the afternoon time there. That's because we're linking up with Europe on this one. Um, we've got Grana 
uh, Gregor Kuz, currently um, uh, uh, with NATO, uh, uh, on a NATO fellowship uh, in Rome, where if it weren't for COVID, I'd be enormously jealous of that, of that, of that sojourn. <laughs> but, but in any event, um, and Jen Hunt um, from um, ANU, uh, who's a non-resident fellow with us here at the US Study Center and Ambassador uh, uh, Baiba Brazé from, uh, from NATO. Um, um, joining us, uh, the global challenge, building resilient citizens in an age of disinformation, increasingly important topic, of course, um, for the US Study Center, but something that Australia and the US were acting on, frankly, was becoming a big agenda item under the Trump administration, but, but the gas pedal has been put, pushed down hard on that one um, with the Biden administration as well. And now increasingly other countries as well joining uh, a network of uh, democracies in pooling their efforts on that. And that'll be the conversation next Thursday afternoon, uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Until then, thanks, everybody. Thanks again, Jim and Zoe. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay.